I'm Nina Grenning-Loreyes and this is the Meet the Changemakers podcast, where you will discover imaginative ideas and unconventional perspectives on business and life from visionary minds and impact-driven leaders around the world. Together, we have one thing in common. We are obsessed with creating a better tomorrow and we are ready to make it happen. I'm very thrilled and very happy to have Tim McDonald on Meet the Changemakers today. And before we go into our conversation, I will quickly introduce him to you for those of you who are not familiar with Tim's work. Tim works with organizations and individuals who are stuck, get unstuck. He's a speaker and facilitates workshops. Recognizing how fear held him back, Tim has changed his relationship with fear and has used it to get unstuck and leave a toxic job, end a 17-year marriage, move to a new city, meet his life partner, and currently looks at having stage four metastasized colon cancer as a gift. He's the former director of community at Huffington Post, founder of My Community Manager, and Director of Communications for Social Media Club Chicago. Welcome, Tim, to Meet the Changemakers. Well, thank you for having me, Nina. It's so great to be here. I'm, I'm very, very um, excited about this conversation. I know we've never met in person, but we've met through social media. And I those are the moments that I appreciate social media for bringing amazing people Uh, into my life. And um, because you're so open with a lot of things that happen in your life, even though we haven't spent, you know, personal time together, I feel like I know you so well. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I appreciate you sharing so openly. The last big chapter in, in your life that you shared so openly about is the diagnosis with stage four colon cancer. You know, when I when I read your article, you published an art article in early December about this. Um, I think it was entitled The Three Words I'd Never Thought I'd Hear. I was honestly shocked to read this because, of course, you know, I, I, I imagine how you must have felt at the same time, the way you write about this experience of hearing your diagnosis was so you know, inspiring and, and, and so deep the way that you've processed it, that I, that I feel like we need to talk about this and we need to, what's the word that I'm looking for? Maybe the, this, this experience of listening, you know, hearing these three words that nobody wants to hear is something that changes your life in an instant. And that's something that I'm really, really curious about How did you grapple with that? And how did you come to arrive at this wisdom that you're sharing in your article where you say that you treat this diagnosis as a gift? It started when I just had a little bit of pain in my side uh, right around Thanksgiving here in the US. And um, I, you know, I went into after a few days, it just got progressively worse to the point where on Sunday, I just told my wife, because where we live, we have an urgent care that I can walk to. It's in, in our neighborhood. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to go over to the urgent care and just have them take a look because it's really just, you know, hurting. And I went over and, you know, they looked at me and pressed on my abdomen area and listened to my chest and everything. And I just was like, you know, got up and she's like, well, I don't think it's anything that needs immediate emergency room care, but I do want to set up a CT scan because I have a feeling this might be kidney stones um, because it doesn't seem like there's any pressure that's affecting you. Um, it's all internal and you don't have any blood, you know, that you've recognized coming out of your, out of your body. And so let's do a CT scan. And if it's kidney stones, we can take the approach. And my wife had had kidney stones in the past. So I knew what, you know, the options were there, but the doctor was explaining it to me. And so it was being a Sunday, I couldn't get a CT scan. 
So on Monday morning, I called up, I got a CT scan, you know, that morning, uh, my first time I've ever gotten a CT scan, went in, got that, they informed me over at the, where they did the CT scan, that they, not to call them, they cannot give any results or diagnosis, um, you have to get it from the doctor that ordered it, so the urgent care facility. So within an hour, I get a call when I got back home that from the urgent care asking me if I could come in. And my initial thought as I walked out the door and told my wife, I said, well, I guess it's not as simple as I'm just prescribing, you know, medication for a kidney to break down the kidney stones. <laughs> um, so I knew it was going to be something different, but I was just in my mind thinking it was going to be something like maybe I need to go get the ultrasound or something to break up the kidney stone. And I walked in and I didn't need to check in or anything. They said, oh, you're Tim. And I said, yeah. And they're like, oh, the doctor's in the back. And I went in the back and it was the head doctor. It wasn't the, the doctor that saw me on Sunday. And I had seen him in the past, uh, a couple years prior, but he sat down and he closed the door in a, in a little room and didn't have me on the table or anything, just had me in a chair. And he had a piece of paper in his hand. And he said, well, I got the result from your CT scan. You have cancer. And I was just like, okay, what does that mean? And he started asking me, do you have a family history of this? No. Do you, did you have any of these symptoms? No, 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 no. And, you know, then it was like, well, this is something. And he knew me from years past that I'm not one who typically goes to the doctor all the time. I'm more into looking at natural ways that we can take care of our body. And instead of just getting pills for everything. So he said, you don't have a primary doctor, right? And I said, right. And he goes, well, let me refer you to a friend of mine. Let me call him. And he actually got on the phone and called a friend of his. And he said, well, if he can drive here and get here before three, we can get him in today. And it was a gastrointestinal um, doctor who did colonoscopies. And I guess what had happened was my colon was so engulfed with this mass of cancer that it was almost to the point of shutting down my, my large intestine, my colon. I didn't realize this at the time because I was still going to the bathroom, you know, and you didn't have was, any symptoms. You know, I didn't have any symptoms. Um, well, I can, I can rephrase that. If I look back now, I probably did have some symptoms, but the two symptoms that I had that were obvious, but not obvious to me, and I'll tell you why, was one, I had a, a little bit of chills during the day and night sweats at night. I did lose a fairly significant amount of weight, but I had, it, right when I started losing the weight was when I changed my diet because I had gone to give blood and my blood pressure was so high that for the first time in my life, they turned me down from giving blood. And I went home and I looked it up and I'm like, me not being one who wants to just go to the doctor and get a pill for my blood pressure said, well, we can maybe do this by diet. So I looked at the diet. It's called the DASH diet here in the US. And it's basically like a low fat, um, low sodium, low sugar, a lot of whole grains, a lot of fruits and a lot of vegetables. And so I started eating that way and I lost weight. The weight loss was probably attributed somewhat to the diet, but also somewhat to the cancer in retrospect. The night sweats, I didn't really think of because we were going through like a change in seasons where we live in Tampa, Florida, even though we don't get winter, like most people do, like with snow and freezing temperatures, we do get, you know, cooler temps. And so I just thought it was like something happening, like along those lines, and it wasn't anything consistent. And the chills I was getting was mostly when we were going over to my daughter's house because she has a, a grandbaby, you know, uh, or she has a daughter, we have a grandbaby now. Before she went into daycare, my wife and I went down and we're watching her while our wife worked um, out of her house and they keep their house a lot cooler than we keep it at home. So I just thought I was getting cold because of the air conditioning there. So all these things in retrospect were probably signs that I had symptoms of cancer, but they weren't obvious to me at the time, just attributed them to other external environmental factors that were going on. But when he told me that I had cancer, I wasn't, I, I like I said, I had a smile on my face and I'm like, okay, well, this is just life, right? It's what happens. What good is it going to do for me to get sad or angry or depressed? Let's just focus on what it is, what we can do, what's the first step we can do. And that first step was getting into 
get that colonoscopy, which I had on Thursday. So Monday I had the CT scan, got the news. Thursday I had the colonoscopy and had a stent put in. Um, and a stent is in your colon is basically like this mesh tube that where they put in my colon to open it up where the mass was so that my stool could pass through, right? And mm -hmm. even though I was going to the bathroom normally before, he had said that within two weeks that would probably would have closed off completely and my colon would have shut down. So it was good timing, but, but so I had that. And, um, and then the next step was, you know, everything's just a step-by-step -step thing, right? You don't have all the answers. And when I look at this and, and you ask me why I call this a gift, right? Is there's a lot of reasons because things like this happen in our lives every single day. They're not this life altering. They're not this big. They're not this drastic, but they happen all the time, right? I mean, think of it when you, you know, just something as simple, and I'll just give an example that happened to me last year that I just remember, you know, brushing your teeth with your toothbrush and every day you hold that toothbrush and you brush your, your teeth, right? But this particular day, the toothbrush jumped out of my hand. You know, I don't know, <laughs> you know what happened, <laughs> but it just did, you know, and, and that's a minor thing, right? But it disrupts what we're used to and it makes us stop and think, but it doesn't make us stop and change our lives. But imagine if we took those opportunities and I'm not, I'm not saying like I needed to change my whole teeth brushing, you know, method by, <laughs> by taking that moment to realter everything. But there are things that happen in our lives. And I, I have a perfect example of a rule I use is if something happens two or three times in a row, like if somebody tells me something two or three times in a row in a short period of time, I know I should take action on it. I remember back when I was in New York and working at HuffPost, I had three different conversations with three different people. And each one of them, after I told my story, asked if I had read Adam Grant's Give and Take. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I hadn't. And so I went out, as soon as that third person said it, I went out and bought the book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but how often do we have those things happen that we don't take any action on? And so that's like one part of the gift is this is so big and so in your face that I felt I had two choices. One is I could look to blame something or someone for this happening to me. Or the second option was I can embrace what I have and start learning what I need to do next in order to try and overcome this. And so that's the path I chose to take because the other path doesn't really get me anywhere except stuck in the past where the other path leads me to a future. The other reason why I call this a gift is, and, and I'm going to tell you that, you know, when I shared this, it wasn't easy for me to do. I wasn't feeling well at all. I, it took me three days to actually write that one post. And I had to have a friend look at it because usually when I write, I write in flow and it just all comes out. Um, and this was something that I wrote a little bit. I wrote a little bit more. I wrote a little bit more. I wrote a little bit more. And so it was so fragmented and not the way that I typically write that I had to have somebody look at it. And she really didn't change too much of anything, just gave me a couple of suggestions. And then I published it. But after I published that, the amount of people that I know, and some that I don't even know, what they've said, what they've reached out to me and told me is just so heartwarming. A lot of it comes from not just wishing me well or sending me their thoughts or prayers, but really letting me know the impact that I've had in their lives. And if you think about that for a minute, when is the time that most people get to hear that or not hear it? It's when they die. It's at their funeral when people start talking about all the stories and all the impact that that, that person that's no longer with us had in their lives. Nobody talks about it while we're still here and alive. And I am so fortunate and so lucky to be one of the few people that get to hear it while I'm alive. And that has just been the greatest gift I think I can, I can ever receive is just hearing from people the impact that I've had in their lives. Because it just touches me. I've always trusted that I've had an impact in other people's lives. But when somebody tells you that, it is a true gift. It gives me goosebumps. And you're really hitting on something there where I find it really fascinating also to like you said, you had two choices to react to this. And one was the blame, 
and one was the embracing it as a gift and uh, seeing it as a way to enrich your life rather than take something away from you. This is, of course, your personal journey, but we all have these, like you said, personal challenges and these moments that disrupt our lives and give us this moment of, okay, now I have a choice. How do I react? Do I continue as I have up to now or do I change something? Do I react in a different way? And also given the whole global challenge that, that we're in right now with the pandemic, which is something that actually led me to start this podcast, because I've been thinking about this for a long time. And maybe it was my third nudge in a way that every time there was a new thing happening, I was thinking, okay, well, now I have to start it, but maybe not. I don't know. And, you know, I was procrastinating on it. And I think what you're saying is so relevant to a lot of us in this time, especially. So my question to you is, you know, not everyone is at the point where they've maybe spent a lot of time reflecting on this, looking at it from these two different choices that we have when we're faced with something that is so challenging. How can we tap into this mindset of, okay, I want to get away from the blame game. I want to get away from maybe even a fear triggered impulse to do something. I want to lean into this other more active and more positive response. What would you say to someone who has trouble with getting there? The way that you are describing it, that it's probably also due to a lot of work that you've done in your life and a lot of experiences that you've had that got you to the point where you react to this diagnosis in the way that you have, you had this, the skills in a way, the mindset in a way to do this. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is not something that comes with an easy button. This is something that I've been working on for years. As I look probably the last eight years, I have really been focused on doing this. And I remember in New York, it started, and most people don't realize this about me, but I have a really bad temper. Back in New York, that was something that I wanted to change. I just realized I, I needed to change this. I didn't like the person I was when I lost my temper. I didn't do it often, but it was usually when things bubbled up, right? And I kept them inside and I didn't share them. So first thing to do is you really need to recognize what's happening. And that's not easy when you're in the moment. So for me with my temper, the first thing that I did was I said, as soon as I recognize this, I need to stop and count to 10. Because what that did for me was it helped me just one, it de-escalated everything after 10 seconds, but more than anything, it reminded me that I was starting to react in a way that I didn't like. So when we specifically talk about like the blame game, right? Like blaming somebody, my anger was always blamed at somebody else, right? Or at something that just happened. And that's why I was losing my temper. So by counting to 10 and recognizing that I was losing my temper was the first step, you know, and it really got me a lot more conscious during those 10 seconds to start thinking about what was happening here what did I want to see happen? Because one, one quote that I love from Einstein is um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And if I reacted the same way every single time when I lost my temper and expected something to be different about how the outcome was, that was insanity. I needed to change something about how I reacted. And so after those 10 seconds, when I was a little bit calmer, I could now, instead of screaming or raising my voice or getting so angry at some somebody or something, I could now just look at it and say, okay, what, what's one little thing that I can change? You know, and maybe that's like saying, can you please explain why you feel this way or why you're saying this to me? Or I can ask myself, it wasn't that screw that I was trying to get in that didn't go in you know, that that's causing me to get it. It's because I don't have the right tool 
to be performing this. And I just need to understand that if I don't have that right tool, I have a choice to go get the right tool or that this is going to keep happening to me. And it's just those little things that you start becoming more conscious of. And first it was something that I was actually talking out in my head and having these conversations. But after eight years of doing this and practicing this, now it becomes something that when I hear those words, you have cancer, I don't have to even stop and, and think about it because I'm still in that conscious mindset of, okay, I understand what's happening here. I understand that I, you know, there's nothing that's going to change. Those words are not going to change. The fact that I have cancer isn't going to change if I get angry, if I start blaming somebody or something or myself. So it was all just almost instinct for me eight years later of practicing this consciousness of thought that I was just able to do this almost in my head instantaneously when I heard those words and react in the way that I did. But when I first started doing it, it literally was months and months of me counting to 10 to actually recognize when something was happening, de-escalating it, and then thinking of a different way that I could react that wouldn't give me the same result that I know that I would get if I just did what I was normally used to doing. So I think for anybody just starting out that doesn't have this mindset yet, it's really about becoming a lot more conscious, recognizing when these things happen and don't get angry with yourself or don't get upset with yourself and don't blame yourself if you miss times because there's times I lost my temper and there still are times when I lose my temper. But I'm a lot better and I don't lose my temper nearly as much compared to eight years ago because I do actually take that time to become aware of when I'm reacting to a certain thing or a certain person in a certain way. And then at that time, it was just taking the, taking the time to deescalate it, to remove myself, to become more aware. And I almost say it's almost like having an out-of-body experience where you're talking with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I remember so vividly, like back eight years ago, it actually, sometimes when I was counting to 10, it was almost like I was outside of my body looking at the situation. I was seeing myself, I was seeing the other person or the, the other thing that was there. And I was actually evaluating the situation going, if he reacts this way, this is what's going to happen. If, you know, if he reacts, this is this way, here's how that person's going to respond. And here's how it's going to go because we've seen this happen time and time again. Mm -hmm. What can he do differently? And then I would come back in my body and actually know that I needed to do something different. Now, what that different was, was could be anything, right? But it's changing something, one little thing that will give you a different response. Now that response might not be the right one. So the next time you try a different response. And so, you know, a lot of times I would, would lose my temper with my wife because she's the one who I spend the most time in my life with. And she didn't like me when I was that person that lost my temper. And so really for me, it was really about wanting to do something that would help and grow our relationship closer and make us be better people, make me be a better person by not losing my temper with her. And so it was always just a matter of how I approach things. And now like when, when something happens, I mean, she almost sees it in me like that time where I just need to decompress and she knows not to push any of my buttons because she knows that's what I'm doing. And she knows that I can respond in a much healthier way for our relationship. And so it, it's been teamwork for both of us to do this. And I think she's grown immensely, you know, through this whole process over the eight years with me, but we've grown together and it just helps me with situations like this that are, are just so, it seems so easy now. And when I talk about it, it seems easy, but I got to tell you, going through it at the beginning was so difficult. It was so painstaking. I didn't want to tell people about it because when you start telling somebody that you're having conversations with yourself, that you're hearing voices, that you have an out-of-body experience where you're actually seeing yourself in a situation, people think you are crazy. That's what I used to think. Mm -hmm. And now I just embrace that and want to share that because there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually so healthy for you to have conversations with yourself. And I think a lot of times it's, it's our fear that holds us back from wanting to change because they know what we're comfortable with, what we don't get in trouble with, what's not going to hurt us. Right. And so it wants to keep us in that spot where if we really have that conversation with our fear, we start to understand 
and fear is just part of our ego, right? It's one component of our ego, one facet of our ego. But when we have that conversation with our fear, we really can get to the root of why fear is showing up in the way that it's doing, why it doesn't want us to change. And all we can do is ask fear that all these other times that they're bringing up as examples, everything ended up being okay. I'm still here. I'm still going, you know, maybe some great things happened out of those things. So let me this time, trust me, and let me just take the chance, take the risk, take the action to see what's going to happen. And if I'm wrong, you can tell me I was wrong. But if I'm right, let's remember that in the future so that you don't come back and try and prevent me from doing the next thing. And that's kind of the conversation I have with my fear. Again, that's kind of all internalized and so quick today. But back a few years ago, that was something that I was doing, like literally like writing out a script, a free flow script, where I was having conversations with my fear for 30, 45 minutes during these, these conversations. And it really took that long for me to have an honest conversation, a very polite conversation, and a very cordial conversation, but a very frank conversation with my fear. And I would write those things out. And that's where I started actually having conversations with my fear to help me not get stuck by my fear, but help me kind of move past my fear. And I heard a great story just this morning. I read it um, from somebody in a, in a storytelling group I'm in, and I'll kind of paraphrase it. But mm -hmm. if, you, if you think of a bullfighter that's got a red cape, right? Do they ever have it out in front of them or they hold it out to the side? They always hold it out to the side, right? And now mm -hmm. if you think of that cape as their fear, their cape as your fear, and the bull as fear coming at you, you don't want fear right in front of you. You want fear off to the side so you don't get hurt. The bull goes right by you instead of coming right to you. And so so I, I kind of butchered the story a little bit, but I think you get the point, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about putting our fear out in front of us and having to overcome it. It's about asking our fear to step to the side and allow us the opportunity to move forward. I love that analogy. I love that story because I I was going to ask you about fear actually because it's something that uh, you've been exploring in in many ways and I think that there's definitely a relationship between or a correlation between how much we let our decisions or our life choices dictate by fear and how much we then allow ourselves or other things to, to change. A lot of change that we want to see in our own lives or that we want to bring into the world, in, into other projects or other communities, they have to do this. Like you said, this conversation, this friendly conversation, they have to befriend fear in order to do that. And would you say that as a society, we might not learn how to, you know, deal with fear anymore. Maybe we haven't really learned how to befriend fear as, as kids or, or in school. Is there something that we should look at from an educational perspective that we're not looking at so that we can have an easier journey with this? Because I think a lot of people are, are really struggling with how to deal with their fears and with their you know, with that fear monster that is almost like you said, sitting right in front of them rather than being able to put it to the side and not making fear go away completely because it will never go away completely. But, you know, like you said, I, I really like that analogy of making it almost like your partner in crime, if you will, using the um, option that fear gives you, which is a high alertness and maybe a more mindful approach to things because fear raises our alertness raises our mind raises the way that we look at things right that in itself can be an advantage too oh yeah and and i mean to answer your question going back to when you started just look at the way we talk about fear most commonly we need to conquer fear we need to overcome fear we need to crush fear there's nothing to fear you know it's it's like all these things about pushing fear away or getting rid of it or suppressing it to the point where we don't see it anymore. And that's no better than sticking your head in the sand and saying that the big scary monster right next to you isn't there. 
it, it's still there. You just don't see it. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, our education system and growing up as kids, now I'm going to talk about my own experiences, right? But this is pretty common because you see it in commercials, you see it on TV shows and in movies. I mean, a kid thinks there's a monster under his bed, right? And mm -hmm. what do most parents do? There's nothing to be afraid of. They don't talk about that that's okay to be afraid. They talk about there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing there. Well, you can't tell me or anybody what's going on in my head, right? What I think. I only know that. And to me, there's a monster under my bed. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and so I think about what would be different if we actually had the conversation about what, it, you know, what does that monster represent? You know, what does it look like? What do you think it's trying to do to you? And it, imagine just having those conversations and maybe that monster now, instead of becoming something that we just say we don't have, becomes something that gives us a new opportunity in life that we never would have seen if we didn't befriend it. I think the same thing growing up in, and I'm talking about, again, my experiences from what I know in North America, most of our schooling system, you are brought up to conform. You're not brought up to be an individual. And it's, it's standardized testing. It's following instruction. It's doing as you're told. It's making sure that you raise your hand before you talk. It's making sure that you ask permission before you go to the bathroom. It's, you know, all these things that, I mean, I think as adults, most of us would say, if I had to ask somebody if I could go to the bathroom, I don't want to be around this person, right? But mm -hmm. what do we do to our kids? We make them ask for permission to get up and go to the bathroom. We don't trust them to get up and go to the bathroom. And all that does is instill fear that if you're not following direction, you're going to get in trouble. So our entire school system, at least here in, in the U.S., and what I've seen, and I'm not saying all schools, because there are schools that do embrace independent learning. There are schools that embrace kids to be individuals and to follow their, their passions and their creativity and their desires. But the overall vast majority of public schools are all looking for us to conform. And conforming is using fear to instill that conformity. It's we need to get good grades because then we won't get a good job. And if we don't get a good job, we won't get a we won't have a good house and and we won't be in good health. And we might go in prison and, you know, because we'll get in trouble. And so it's all these things that are fear, 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 fear being put on you without actually having the conversation of what does that mean? What does that look like? Maybe I'm a type of person who doesn't want to have a primary home that I own and a vacation home that I own. Maybe I'm not the type of person that wants to have a retirement account that's enough to make me, you know, sustain my lifestyle from now until I'm 100 years old. Maybe I just like living day to day. You know, we can't dictate for every single person how they should be. They need to decide for themselves. But what our society and what our educational system does is for the most part, all puts in a conformity standard that makes you feel like you're not enough. And then our own fear kicks in and uses those things that we've heard from other people and starts telling us if we're not that way, we're not good enough. If we're not doing this, we're not going to be liked. If we take this risk and do something that nobody's done before, everybody's going to laugh at you or nobody's going to show up. That's what our fear does because of what's been instilled in us from the time we were very young and, in, and through our entire schooling system. And I would even contend through most of our work environment, it's the same thing. Fear is instilled in us. Fear becomes so instilled that we have a tough time breaking through that conversation with our fear to be able to let it know that everything's going to be okay, that I'm going to be okay if I do this, if I take this risk, if I do this thing differently than what I've been told in the past and what everybody else is telling me externally, I'm going to be okay. And it's very difficult to do when you've had it instilled in you for that long. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I can, I grew up in Germany. I was born and raised in Germany and I can definitely also underline that experience that I have had in school where I, even as a young kid in, in first or second grade, I already felt that weird pressure to not stand out, to not say the wrong thing. And I was always a very, very shy and a very don't open your mouth until you're asked uh, to speak type of person. And it took me years to get 
unstuck from that behavior that was instilled in me and also to befriend my fear. Like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a really long process. And depending on how much you've gotten used to it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really not easy to do so. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is when you left your job, how did you do that without thinking about, oh, you know, what might people think? This is so unconventional if I leave my job and move to another city and start something completely different. And there are all these, like you said, social pressures on you. How did you approach that? And were you at the time already at the point where you knew that I have that relationship with my fear, I can do this and I know how to handle it? Or was it a, a very kind of abrupt decision and dis disruption in your life? Well, I think I had a pretty healthy relationship with my fear at the point that I did that. But, you know, it was funny when my wife and I decided to move to Tampa from New York, you know, I was working remotely and my wife had a retail job and we just decided we could live anywhere that we wanted. Where do we want to live? And our criteria was a lower cost of living, um, being close to the beach and not being in a winter environment, you know, with snow and ice and cold temps. And we also wanted to be closer to family. Now, Chicago was where most of our, both of our families were, the majority, and that had cold and snow and ice. Um, it had a high cost of living, not quite as high as New York, but, you know, definitely high. So it, it only ticked off, you know, the one box of being closer to family. So the other two places were Southern California, which didn't check off the lower cost of living, and Tampa, Florida, because our daughter had, had moved down here. And so Tampa, Florida was had a beach. So we just made the decision to move. And most people thought we were nuts because my wife didn't have a job lined up. Um, she had to, you know, look for another job once we got down here. But you know, the the biggest question I got, and for those of you that aren't familiar with Florida, there's a lot of snowbirds. Um, people from up north come down during the winter time, so they escape the winter <laughs> and stay in more mild temps. But we also have a lot of retirees here. There's a lot of retirement villages and communities. So the biggest question I got, like when I went to get a driver's license, when I went to open a bank account, when I went to get my license plate, it was all, oh, you're moving from New York. Did you get transferred for your job? And I said, no. And they're like, oh, you're retired. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it was a choice. <laughs> you know, it was our choice to move here. You could tell by the questions that they were asking and why they were asking was because that's the only reason why people move. They don't move for their choice. They move because they have to have a job somewhere. They want to retire somewhere. You know, they want to escape something. And for us, it was what we wanted, what we chose to, where we chose to be. That's how this relationship with fear works is because most of us say, well, I can't move just wherever I want because all my friends and family are here or because, you know, my kids are in school and, you know, I want them to finish their school here or because I don't have a job lined up there yet. How are you going to get a job lined up here if you don't start focusing on looking for a job here where you want to move? Right. And so it's just, it's all, and the, these get into those changes that we start making, but first we need to become more conscious. Like I talked about, you know, very early on about what's going on in our head. Why are we thinking the way we're thinking? Why are we reacting the way that we're reacting? And once we become conscious of that, then we can start working on how do we start changing that? And so leaving the toxic job was something, you know, I've done it twice. And the first time was a little scary because I didn't really have anything lined up and it was it financially, I was not prepared to be out of work for any more than like two or three months. <laughs> so it wasn't like this, this thing where I had a nest egg where I could take two years and explore and travel and figure out what I wanted to do in life. It was something where I had like one month to try and figure out how am I going to start making some more money. And this amazing thing happened when I wasn't scared about that, when I didn't let fear hold me back from leaving that, um, I started getting people coming to me and saying, I, I don't have anything permanent, but would you, and I know it's not a lot of money, but would you be willing to help out with this? And this little three-week project turns into a seven-month contract. And that happened over and over. And it seemed like as soon as one ended, somebody else was asking me to do another one. And at the same time, I figured, you know, I heard you can make money driving for Uber and Lyft. So I started driving for Uber and Lyft. And I loved driving for Uber and Lyft because of the people I met and the stories I heard. 
Mm-hmm. I did not like driving for Uber and Lyft because you don't make the money that they advertise unless if you're working the shifts that are like Friday and Saturday nights or overnights. And that wasn't something I wanted to do because my wife was working during the day. And if I worked at night, I would never see her. And my wife and I like each other and we like being around each other. So we wanted to be together. (laughs) So (laughs) that really didn't work out too well. But then I started, you know, my wife's been on eBay since the first couple of years. And I started doing, I took, I remember this so vividly. I had $75 in my bank account. I went in and spent all of it on inventory to start an eBay store. And I sold that $75 worth of inventory for like $150. And then I took $100 and I went back and I bought more inventory. Mm -hmm. And that turned into a few months later, me going in and spending a couple thousand dollars at a time. And so all of a sudden this eBay business grew at the same time I was still doing speaking and workshops. So it was all, and that was growing. So it was great. You know, then I had another job that I wasn't really looking for. It just was like something that I figured it sounded like an interesting challenge. They made it, you know, when I went in for the interview, everything sounded like it would work out great. I knew six months in that this was not for me. It was actually so toxic for me, but it was giving me such a lesson. I don't ever point blame on anybody, even myself, for going through that experience. But I left that in February of 2020. And when I left that job, I didn't have anything lined up. I was going to try and really focus on promoting my speaking. I had two or three things lined up. One was in early March. Fortunately, I got to go to that and I got paid. But as soon as we got back from that trip in March, COVID hit. All the other events got canceled that I was scheduled to speak at. So there went another $10,000 worth of income, right? And so now I'm like thinking, okay, what am I going to do? And again, it was, well, I can either sit here and blame that COVID is causing all this, or I can look at what can I do differently? What, where are people going to be going? And I started looking at doing virtual events. And I actually ran my first virtual event the very end of March, It was a two-day, eight-hour event where I had eight speakers, and we were talking about leadership in uncertain times because that was very uncertain back at the end of March. And I didn't make a ton of money off of it, but and we donated some money, but it was a great experience and got me out there. And then I started thinking, man, I should reach out to some other speakers and learn what they've learned along their path so that it can help me prepare as I gear up during this pandemic for when live events come back, because that's what I really love is I really love being out in front of people. I love getting the chance to talk with people after the event's over. And so I put that out there and um, I got to help co-produce a 40 hour virtual event that had 40 speakers and it was over five days. And that connected me with even more speakers, some that I knew, some that I didn't know. And that led me to the idea of all these speakers in the green room were talking, basically I put them into three buckets. This wasn't something they shared publicly, but it was something that we talked about before we went live. Their business had either come to a screeching halt. Their business was pretty status quo, maybe changed a little bit because of what was going on with COVID. And then some people, their business had actually exploded because of what was going on. It was just going gangbusters. And I'm like, this is so fascinating that we have one industry of professional speaking, and I'm seeing such variations in what the results are. And so I started interviewing speakers and asking them, well, what type of clients do you work with? How much of your work is being on stage or being in front of people, you know, face-to-face or computer-to-computer versus doing consulting work, doing other types of work for clients? And What type of audiences do they typically talk to? What type of industries? Um, How many years have they been doing this? How has their business changed over the years? And then what lessons had they learned both when they first started and now? And it was just so fascinating what people were sharing with me because most of them have never even stopped to think about it themselves. And most of them have never had anybody ask them about that. And then I had the idea, well, I'm having all these great conversations I should start sharing this with the world. And I started a show called The Business of Speaking, where I had to actually have these conversations and put them on YouTube. And so I started doing that. 
Now that hasn't turned into me getting a lot of speaking gigs, but it's turned into me learning a lot and being more prepared for when live events come back and how to position myself as a speaker, what, who I work with, what I help people with. And the biggest thing that I learned during this whole thing was that when you say you work with people instead of you help people, all of a sudden now it becomes something that people want to hire you and pay you for instead of looking just for you to give advice for free. And so I look at every opportunity now leaving that toxic job as a great opportunity, not only to share what I learned during that experience and why I should leave, but also like what opportunities are out in front of me? Where is this leading me to? I don't know. I have no idea where it's going to lead me, but I know if I'm doing something, if I'm planting seeds, if I'm just trusting the currents to see what's going to happen, something will sprout. Something will be there for me to harvest down the road. And that's all I can do right now is just keep planting those seeds, keep nurturing the, the, the seedlings that are growing and which ones come to, and bear fruit. I don't know but I will be ready when they do because I'm going to be there still nurturing them and to see what happens. And I knew that when I left that job that I didn't have a firm plan. I didn't have a, a guaranteed income. I didn't have a guaranteed salary. What I had was I had trust in myself that if I just created enough, if I planted enough seeds, if I stuck with it long enough, something would come about. And I can't sit here today and tell you, Nina, that it's there. I'm, I'm ready. I know what that is, but I can tell you that I'm getting closer on a lot of those things and I'm starting to put things out there that are a little bit different than they were a month ago, two months ago, six months ago. And it's not happening overnight, but I'm going to start seeing some results from it. And if I don't, I'll do something a little bit different and keep changing it a little bit until I do. And eventually something's going to hit. But in the meantime, I'm comfortable with the fact that I am going through what I'm going through. I have tremendously more medical expenses than I ever thought I'd have in my life. My output is a lot less than my input right now as far as money goes, but mm -hmm. I'm not letting that worry because I know that the best and healthiest thing for me right now is to take care of my body. And if I can do that, everything's gonna be okay. It doesn't matter about what the money's gonna be down the road. We'll figure that out, something will happen. I put enough seeds out there. I've nurtured enough seeds. I know that something's going to happen, but I just need to trust the currents right now and take care of myself. And I think that's that certainly took the eight years to get to. There's no way I would have left a job without having anything else lined up eight years ago. Absolutely mm. not. I would have been petrified of doing that. And my fear would have kept me in a place of safety and comfort, perceived safety and comfort even if it was at the risk of my own health, mm. because that's what I was taught to do. I was taught to always make sure you have income coming in. And when I was free enough to let that go, amazing things have happened. Yeah. I love that. And I love that uh, we can kind of coming back full circle and, and come back to that idea of trust and uh, the idea of trusting that what whatever happens to you doesn't mean that you're given a definite whatever it is uh, sentence, but you are in the driver's seat and you can make a choice as long as you trust in yourself, as long as you trust in the universe. And I think that's that's a beautiful way to kind of uh, come full circle on this conversation. I do want to ask you two more things before we wrap this up. One, what would you say 2021 will be a year of what? For me or just in general? <laughs> Maybe both for you personally <laughs> and for us in general. I think what 2020 or 2021 will be for us is a year of growth. I think last year I would say was it showed us how resilient we all are, but I think this year we we are going to take that resilience and turn it into growth. And you can define growth however you want for yourself, but I think that's what 2021 is going to be about is it's going to be about growth. You know, for me personally, I definitely say that 2020 was a year of resilience for me. And I think 2021 
is going to become a year of, I think, really recognizing what's important in life. You know, when you're, when you have had a doctor tell you that you have three years left, I don't believe that, but just hearing that, <laughs> those, those words, that's something that makes you really stop and think, how do I want to use those next three years if that's all I have? And what do I want to do? And to me, it's really about not spending time on the stuff that's not important and focusing on the stuff that is. That's beautiful. And something that we can all get inspiration from because we could all ask ourselves that question, right? Um, it's, it's so powerful to ask yourself that question. What if you only had a set amount of number of years? And the truth is we all only have a set amount of number of years <laughs> on, the, uh, on this planet. So it doesn't, it, that's, that's what unites us. So that's what's so beautiful about this, that the realization oftentimes doesn't kick in until you have somebody give you that, kind of notice in, in writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And, and I mean, you know, Hey, I, maybe I do have three years, but maybe I walk out across the street and get hit by a car next week. You know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> it's, it's all just a matter of how do I want to live today? And really when you think in shorter terms, it gets into the whole, how do I want to spend this next hour? How do I want to spend this next day? It's not about how do I want to spend next year or two years from now. It's about what do I want to do now? Yeah. Tim, where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? Well, <laughs> I'm certainly just about on every major. Well, I used to be able to say that. I guess not anymore with all the different social platforms there are. But um, my main ones are, are Twitter, where I'm at T.A. McDonald. And then... Um, Definitely on LinkedIn, you can find me. I'm Tim A. McDonald. So linkedin.com forward slash in and then Tim, letter A, and then McDonald, M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. And certainly I encourage people, reach out. Um, you can text me. You can get me on WhatsApp. My telephone number is, obviously I'm in the US, so it's country code 1-312-970-0846. Thank you so much, Tim, for taking the time today to speak with us. I truly appreciate this. I appreciate your honesty and your insights into life and how to deal with change and how to um, befriend fear. There's so much that I'm taking away from this conversation. I'm truly grateful for this and for you. I wish you a year of beautiful moments. I also wish you lots of healing, that you have an amazing medical team around you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Nina. And I can tell you, even though we're on audio, that I have a really big smile on my face right now. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meet the Changemakers podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found inspiring, instructive, or hopeful? Can you think of anyone, maybe a friend, colleague, or fellow entrepreneur, who would appreciate this conversation? If so, take a second and share today's episode with them. Because together, we can make it happen and build a better future. Until next time. <laughs>